0: This is State of Water. This is State of Water. This
1: is State of Water. State
0: of Water, coming at you right now.
2: State of Water. A podcast focusing on clean water issues and their relationship to policy, equity, community, and
1: climate. Featuring captivating interviews with Michiganders from many walks of life. State of Water is the official podcast of the Clean Water Campaign for Michigan, a program of the nonprofit organization Title Track.
0: Hey, this is Jenny from Title Track. If you resonate with what you're about to hear, put those feelings into action. Take the first step toward getting involved by going to titletrackmichigan.org contact to sign up for our mailing list.
1: Welcome back, folks. We hope you're staying safe out there and staying engaged. We need you. On this episode, we feature a dynamic and game-changing luminary from Detroit. Piper Carter is an arts and culture organizer in the entertainment justice, education justice, makerspace, environmental justice, and food justice communities. She is the host of her own podcast, the Piper Carter Podcast, on Detroit is Different, where she discusses social justice and hip hop to a worldwide audience. She is co-founder of We Found Hip Hop, a foundation uplifting, celebrating, and supporting women in hip hop as they create and build careers in a safer environment. She is the creator of Dilla Youth Day, dedicated to providing STEAM education to underserved and marginalized youth in Detroit. She is also creator and editor-in-chief of TheStudioArena.com, a sustainable fashion magazine promoting zero waste and international trade. From her work as a fashion photographer, she has been a returning feature on Tyra Banks' VH1 show The Shot. She is the first black woman to shoot for high end publications such as French Vogue, British L, The New York Times, Spin and Essence magazines, and an emerging talent for music companies such as Def Jam, Sony Music, Warner Music. Universal Music, Disturb the Peace, Electra Records, and television cast images for BET. She is a founding member of a staggering list of action councils, caucuses, and boards with environmental, equity, and youth-focused missions in Detroit. She's a Howard University graduate, a next-level volunteer coordinator, and an adept co-creator. Piper received the prestigious Muhammad Ali Global Peace Initiative Women of Impact Award from the United Nations. She also received the Spirit of Detroit Award for creating Dilla Youth Day. Here to introduce Piper is Seth Bernard.
2: So Piper, always great to talk with you and, and thank you for everything that you're doing, all the wonderful and important work that you do. You're involved in so many different things. That I, uh, I find myself excitedly telling people about you and it's always like interesting to try to encapsulate all the different things that you do, but it'd be great to just touch on some of these things and, and some of your personal background. Um, but let's start with Southwest Cares, the mutual aid effort that you're working with in Detroit. Can you tell our listeners about what what you all have going on and, and how uh, people could be of support?
0: Yeah, actually, I don't know if folks know, like, you know, when you look at an urban city, you've got the different neighborhoods, right? Or the different sections, or maybe they're different districts. And so, you know, in Detroit, you've got your east side and your west side and your northwest. Well, southwest is almost like its own whole world. Not only because it's one of the most multicultural areas of Detroit, but because it also where it's situated, it actually is at the edge, if you will, of the water. And so it's it's a very large section Southwest Detroit. Like I said, it's multicultural, but but by Detroit also being very segregated, you have like a black side of Southwest, and then you have what I would call a Latino side of Southwest. And the black side would be more like your more industrial parts that we're used to seeing. You know, if you look towards Detroit and you see the smokestacks, you're going to be looking towards, you know, southwest and where all of that pollution is occurring. That's that's the what we would call the black part, right, of southwest. It, it, it is right off of um, our, our, you know, Detroit River, our body of water and. It does have a lot of uh, the industrial, you know, businesses, marathon and this kind of thing, poisoning all those people for years. Um, U- U.S. Steel, like all these terrible things. Um, but with that, it's also historically that black section is also historically one of the strongest voter populations historically. Like the, it said that the power that lived and existed. And that part of Southwest is what got the longtime mayor, Coleman Young, who was the mayor for at least 20 years of the city of Detroit. They say that that power base is what actually got him elected. I'm just giving that little bit of history Mm -hmm. right next to that is what you would call the Latino side of Southwest, where you have historically families and people that have been migrating to the U.S. and settling in Detroit as being a part of the auto business and, and, and before, right? Even even uh, as early as 1800s. And so when you have different phases, I should say, of migration, where folks are coming from different places, right? And mm-hmm. they come at different time periods, right? And so in Southwest, you've got, you know, a uh, high Mexican population, Puerto Rican population, you know, Salvadorian but then there's also different Arab populations, Yemeni, and like I said, you're different black populations. And so of the city of Detroit, it is the most diverse per square foot or whatever. So mm-hmm. I'm just I'm just giving folks understanding of what Southwest Detroit is kind of like. So you've got lots of culture, m- many languages, you know, it's just a really vibrant place to be. And so uh, one of the young people that has grown up in Southwest, that is of Mexican descent, Gabriela Romero Santiago, is running for Wayne County Commissioner. She's young. She's a millennial. She has a lot of vibrancy. She's from the community. And she is running for Wayne County Commissioner. And so with that, a part of what she's doing, she created a mutual aid list it started up being a mutual aid list and she brought in different people to help support one of those people being uh, Michelle Martinez who is from Michigan Environmental justice coalition and she's brought in some different funding from like climate justice Alliance and and other places to help bring much needed resources to people that are living in Southwest The mutual aid team is a group of volunteers that either live in Southwest or have worked with Southwest or just love people from Southwest. It's called Southwest cares. Mm -hmm. And with that, the mutual aid fund is able to give a little bit of um, relief to people who really need some relief. And so it's in the form of some groceries and food distribution and just giving resources to where they can get other resources. So there's a huge list that that includes, you know, the Wayne Metro, as well as all the other forms and places to get support that are either from the city or private or just people who care. And then the people who make up all of the volunteers, like I said, are all the way from people who are, you know, really invested in social work and social service, to people like myself who are artists and just really care and do social justice and everything in between. And um, there's another woman, Angela Gallegos, and mm-hmm. she she was a artist manager. And she's actually been the one kind of spearheading and masterminding the organization of this list. There's a lot of great volunteers, a lot of people that are from Southwest that are a part of this. I'm a, I'm a part of it. I'm a, just a little part of it. But um, each one of us just volunteers as much time as we can. We take shifts. Uh, we meet to look at, you know, how things are going and, and what else needs to be done and how we can better support folks and so yeah that's just one piece of uh work that i've been involved in um since covid began here in detroit thank you you're welcome
2: you so much of your work has has been around uh justice dismantling systems of oppression shedding light on racial disparities uh covid has has done that as so many other things have with uh you know, communities of color being twice as likely to get COVID. Um, I'm up here in in northern Michigan. A few weeks back, we spoke with Monica Lewis-Patrick. Here we are in late May now. I'm wondering if you could just kind of share how things are feeling where you're at in Detroit regarding COVID at this moment.
0: So I'm also a member of a coalition that we've created, and it's made up of environmental justice organizers and activists and it's called frontline detroit Mm -hmm. and um we started last year around uh i think around april and we initially came together to do uh an action at the democratic national debates because it was uh here in detroit last year in the summer. And so when we came together, we brought together literally thousands of people to hear Detroit stories, listen to Detroit music, and have Detroiters be centered, and, 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 and also have Detroiters be organizers of, of just being able to uplift their stories because at that moment, you know, the, their all eyes were on the Democratic National Debates as well as the city of Detroit. And so with that, we were able to hash out through some very difficult conversations and get to some places where we understood our different ideologies and how we, you know, where we differed and where we could actually align. And I think I'm naming that because that process allowed us to kind of stay working together and thinking together as a coalition. And so through that, we've created now what is what is Frontline Detroit. Mm. And so it was it was a com or it is a combination of folks who work at bigger spaces, let's say, like Sunrise or Sierra Club or these more like mainstream. And then all the way through to more localized organizations, as well as Michigan Environment and Justice Coalition. But like uh, SEIU was at the table. And then there was lots of just grassroots people at the table who have been organizing, you know, 20 plus years all the way up to young people, you know, and youth who have have just started maybe like last year. So we've been, you know, meeting and then last year we were like, let's have a, you know, some as opposed to just always coming together to do work 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 and organizing let's just come together and like do some dinner get to know each other do some relationship building so we did a couple of those even something for the holiday and then we were like after the holiday like let's do a people's movement assembly so we started building to do this people's movement assembly and Mm. then covid hit because we were supposed to do it like right around the 14th
1: Mm. and
0: and leading right i'm sorry march 14th so leading right up to that You know, before we knew what was what, we were like, we'll just not have it like in person this time, you know, we'll give, we'll let's see how this will go. And then we were like, well, in the meantime, if they're saying that people need water to wash their hands, then I think as opposed to just doing this movement assembly right now, we could take all this energy and put it with the water warriors and start delivering water, you know, help them. Because they've been delivering water for at least a decade, right, door-to-door, because um, Detroit has had this aggressive water shut off. So we were like, well, all this momentum that we built, let's just put it towards them, help them move the water. Well, as we started moving the water, then we started to see, you know, things were developing or increasing and getting worse. And then we started seeing where... The city was still continuing to shut people off of water, as well as they have purged the records of anyone who's delinquent over one year. And so there's hundreds of people, thousands of people, we are counting 10,000 people that are currently and have been Mm -hmm. living without water for Mm -hmm. more than one year right, for Mm -hmm. two years, three years, four years, five years, six years, that they've been doing this aggressive water shutoff. Mm -hmm. At one point, it was 144,000 people that they had cut off without water. And so the governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer, one of her executive orders is to turn all water on. And with that, we realized that the city, because they had purged the records of one year, were saying that they were they were saying that they were in compliance according to their records. Meanwhile, their records aren't reflecting the people who have been cut off over two years. And we currently, be the people, people's water board and um, welfare rights and others have been delivering this water and trying to help people get their water put on previous to that there had been through the aggressive uh shut off a policy that the water department had come up with where if a person uh has their water off or is on the water shut off list when the water department shows up to their home to shut the water off they show up with the detroit police department and child protective services and they remove the child or children from the home and put them in a juvenile detention center and then they charge the parents with neglect and abuse and some other things. Mm -hmm. And so that's been going on at least since 2014. And we the people and others have been uh, fighting against that and working to get um, affordable water as a policy. Mm -hmm. And, And so through this COVID thing, All of that was still going on that we learned, even even though the governor has this entire executive order that says that everyone should keep the water on. And so um, what we decided to do is, in addition to delivering the water, is to create a media team that can get the word out to Mm. people. And so I'm on that media team. We were able to get Democracy Now!, the metro times the free press um pbs news hour we got it in um the aap associated press which pushed it to literally like hundreds of mainstream um news outlets and you know uh abc news so Mm -hmm. we've been really working very diligently to make sure that the story stays out there and that people understand that there was a lot of press on the governor's executive order to keep the water on. So everyone thinks that the water is still on, Mm -hmm. but the reality is that literally about 10,000 people are currently living without water. And so we also have a petition that we're asking folks to sign. That's on moveon.org or frontline Detroit, And basically in that petition, we're like, sign this because we're gonna deliver it to the mayor and the head of the water department, Gary Brown, for them to be in compliance with the governor's executive order that all water needs to be turned on because part of, we know with COVID, part of the way to fight against it, you must wash your hands, you must bathe. And just with that, and I'll just finish this last thing. Many people who do not have water are essential workers. These Mm -hmm. are folks that are working in the grocery stores, stocking your food, being your cashier, cleaning hospitals. And when they go home, they have small children and those small children, you know, need to be changed or they might be taking care of an elder that Mm -hmm. needs to be changed or they might be taking care of a person with disabilities that needs to be changed and they don't have access to you know water that's running out of the tap and they don't have access to hot water or clean water to wash their hands or bathe themselves it takes about eight cases of bottled water per person per day to do your basic you know water consumption washing cleaning cooking you know and so we know the environmental impacts of bottled water and plastic so imagine people that must live off of this so in addition to you know the health hazards that they that they have to endure in addition to being people that are you know unable to clean themselves and have access to you know spaces where other where they're able to make others vulnerable you know there's also a huge impact that's happening on the Earth with regards to the plastics and the waste, mm-hmm. and so um, that—that's <laughs> not even like the length of it, but that's just you know getting to the points to help you understand mm-hmm. what it, you know what the what the crisis is. And so I'm a part of that media team that's helping get this into the news and getting on on social media and on strategizing and things like that, as well as a lot of long term activists that have been
2: doing this way longer than myself as well Mm. thank you for your work with frontline detroit and uh thanks for the perspective it's very much appreciated and and this is one of these moments that we have where we're responding to a crisis but it gives us an opportunity to change the game in the future and so we have to leverage turning the water on and keeping the water on And the work that you're doing with the media is really interesting, Piper. And um, I'd like to kind of go back a little bit into your personal history. You know, you were the first black woman to shoot for many high-end publications as a fashion photographer. And then you're the co-founder of We Found Hip Hop, the foundation of women in hip hop, empowering women and girls through hip hop. You're the founder of Dilla Youth Day which is one of the most treasured events in Detroit and in the state of Michigan. I would love to just hear you speak about how your background in fashion photography and your passion for the arts and hip-hop has influenced your work for Justice and how you bring that to the table with all of these collaborations.
0: You know what's interesting? Social justice is popular right now, or it's sexy or whatever. Mm-hmm. But um, it's interesting because I literally grew up in the movement but i didn't actually realize it if that makes sense i mean what i mean is my uncle is one of the a founding member of the league of revolutionary black workers and that was all about black folks that were working at the plant and organizing and 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 union organizing you know in the 60s and the 70s so they created drums You know each one of the outlets that they had to get their message across you know was based out of each plant and so the acronym goes according to you know whatever plant where you worked but they would come together and do political education and things like that and so for me i grew up in it and i didn't actually realize that i was an activist I mean, it was sort of ingrained in me, right? Like also my grandma was, you know, she marched with King and my grandfather was a Garveyite and my grandma was deeply, both my grandparents were deeply embedded in the church and they did a lot of social work, if you were social services or justice work, you know, at the church. Uh, my family was very politically oriented in, in electoral politics, but also, you know, have union people. My grandmother was a teamster. So, interestingly, that all that stuff that I grew up around mm-hmm. was so normalized mm-hmm. that I personally just didn't even see myself as a part of it, if that makes sense, because I looked to all of them and all the extraordinary stuff that they were doing and just never thought of myself as even being near to <laughs> as extraordinary as any one of them, or have the courage to do the stuff that they did or the, or even the ability to think in the ways that they did. But I think when I look back, though, the way that I think was very much shaped by my family and, and, and the lessons and things that I learned from them about being invested in community, um, giving back, You know, uh, self-determination, having a sense of um, pride in in your work, um, having a sense of um, valuing where you come from and and valuing humanity and humans and people and um, doing things in a way that's people-centered. And that's not language that was spoken, if you will, but I'm looking back at, like, the way they did it. It was taught differently, and I should say, with different words, but over the years, I, I realized as I look at my life, I've just always been that person because of the way I was raised to speak on things and say, hey, this wasn't right, or I don't think that was right. I wasn't at the time being a justice person. I just thought, like, you know, this needs to be better, as opposed to me trying to fight people because I had gotten exhausted trying to fight against and i was like let me just create what it is that i want to see and so of the things that i didn't see i just started creating them and Mm. uh i didn't know anything about co-creation i just knew that i wanted to do it with people and so it was like hey let's do this like I'm not in charge. I'm not a boss. Like we can all own this together, and we can create this together. And mm-hmm. later, I want to say I didn't learn about that word co-creation until probably about five years ago. I'm gonna be honest with you. Mm-hmm. And literally everything I'd done up until that point was co-creation. Mm-hmm. So th- it's just interesting as you know as we move forward. There's lots of words for all these things that we did mm-hmm. and that and that I've been a part of. But I didn't have any of this language until very recently and so um these are things that were just in my heart that i wanted to do and i didn't have the money and i didn't have the connections and i didn't have all the things along with the stuff i just didn't have but i just had the vision and i had a passion and i just asked do you want to be a part of this do you want to be a part of this and then the people who said yes that's who i built with and the people who said no they're they were just looking on like we are crazy. But a lot of those people are coming back around now like, oh, my God, that was really genius stuff that y'all were doing. So, mm-hmm. you know, um moving in the future now with COVID, I mean, mm-hmm. everything's kind of up in the air in a mm-hmm. sense, meaning we're the, we are the future and we're looking at the future, you know? Mm-hmm. We're creating the future as we speak, so... Even this whole process, the, the way that I, that I had done stuff is even the way lots of folks are going to have to do things, you know, moving forward, only because we have to create this new world and we don't know, you know, what this new world is or what this world's going to be, but it's going to be whatever we make it, you know what I mean?
2: Hmm. Well said, yeah and thank you thank you for all of this work that you've done. It's visionary and uh it's had such a tangible impact on so many friends and colleagues and and our community as a whole and In a recent conversation you and I had, Carter, you were talking about pivoting for for the foreseeable future. What does that look like for we found hip hop and and potentially for Dilly Youth Day? Yeah, so I'll
0: start with Dilly Youth Day. Um, part of the reason that I created it, you know, it's a steam event and it's for youth. Well, I want to do something, you know, that's dedicated to young people. Another reason it was created was because initially when I first moved to Detroit, there wasn't any talk of Dilla and like 99.9, this was like 2008, 99.9% of the people I spoke to were like, they never heard of Jay Dilla. Mm. And so, um, I was like, this is terrible because when I'm in New York city, or in Paris, or London, or Japan, or wherever, LA, Philly, you know, all these other, mm-hmm. DC, all these other places have a Dilla Day, you know, where they dedicate to the Dilla. So, at the time, I'd had um, a multidisciplinary hip-hop art gallery that I co-owned with another person, and I was like, we should do something dedicated to Jay Dilla, and everybody that was a part of the legacy was like, sad because they were like oh dilla's mom is sick and she's poor and she doesn't have we don't know what to do and i was like wait a minute doesn't she just live over here blah 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 in this neighborhood and they were like yeah i'm like why don't why can't y'all just go over her house and check on her and see how she's doing or say hi and they were like they hadn't even thought of that you know Mm. so it was this disconnect in that way so i was like well we could do a fundraiser because I didn't know her, right? So I was like, well, we could do a fundraiser and they could keep the money. And at the time, a young woman by the name of Kendra Parker had created the Jay Dilla Foundation. Mm-hmm. And so I met her, and then um, somehow, some way, I got connected with Miguel Atwood Ferguson, who he took the Dilla beats and he wrote them out into. Musical notes and and and, cre- and wrote the sheet music mm. for for Dilla's music and um, he created a film and he got the legendary B plus is a legendary photographer, hip hop photographer and he filmed this multicultural orchestra and they played the music and he calls it a suite for my Dukes. It's the most beautiful thing you've ever heard. Mm-hmm. And it's photographed beautifully. They came to Detroit and shot, but then they photographed most of it in Los Angeles. It's all in black and white. But they flew out, and Fiddler, and then Pasta Newts, um is rapping on it from De La Soul, and Talib Kweli, is rapping on it, and um, it's just really beautiful. They have this whole orchestra. Kareem Riggins is playing on the drums, and then they have you know a chair because Dilla used to play. The cello so they have the empty chair with the cello even that he's mm-hmm. a part of the orchestra and um with the whole film and it's just amazing and um they interview my Dukes, and it's just this beautiful thing called speak for my Dukes. now the reason all of this even you know happened was because we were doing or i was doing a weekly no massaging open mic dedicated mm-hmm. to women and I was like, we should do something for Dilla because his birthday is coming up. And um, uh, I learned about that, that film. And I said, we got to do the week for my dukes, You know? And Miguel Atwood Ferguson, B-Plus, and the film company that put the project together, Mochella, they flew themselves all out to Detroit. Because I was like, I don't have any money or anything. They were like, it's cool, don't worry. They gave us like 350 DVDs that we gave away of the film they um you know they 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 paid for uh the folks to perform we had all the different folks who had made music with Dilla, like um fat cat and dj des and guilty simpson had performed and um, like dwelle came out and it was just a really beautiful affair and um we raised a couple thousand dollars And we had my Dukes and the Jay Dilla Foundation. You know, they kept all all the 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 monies that came in. And it was just really great. So that next year, I said, okay, I want to do, you know, another thing dedicated to Dilla. And in that, I had the Urban Strings Youth Orchestra perform. And so when they performed, it's a group of young folks that are learning how to play stringed instruments. So violin, viola, cello, bass and they were doing stuff like Lady Gaga and all of that. And I was like, okay, that's cool. So after they did their performance, I was like, "Hey, let's um let's freestyle. Can you guys freestyle?" And they looked at me like, "What's that?" And I was like, "Oh man. Like because the backbone or the center or the, 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 the crux or like the very heart of the of black music or the legacy of black music is improvisation. Mm-hmm. That's jazz. You know, mm-hmm. that's hip hop. That's soul. That's r and B. I I was like, how do y'all not know how to freestyle? I was like, y'all know how to freestyle. They were like, I never tried it before. I'm like, you never took your instrument and just played around with it. Like, separate from just learning the music that you need to learn. And they were like, no. I said, no, no, no. This is what we're going to do. I was like, you guys, know, you guys know how to pluck that thing? And they were like, what? You have to play it with a bow. I'm like, you can play a violin with a bow, but you can pluck it, too. Or you can beat on a little bit, or you can make beats. And they were like, i never seen that done. I'm like, okay, y'all are about to have some fun today. So, and Fiddler was like, cool. And, oh, and Nick Speed was there. He was like, cool. And so, uh, they went with it, and they were a little bit scared and nervous, but they ended up trying it, and it was the most amazing thing. And that's when it clicked in me. I was like, we can't care about the cool people and all these other people if they don't want to be involved. This has to be for the youth. Mm, this has to be for mm. the kids. Like, they have to learn the legacy. They like, have to pass this down. Yes. But we're going to lose this knowledge. And so ironically or consequentially or just perfectly all at the same time i had started getting into youth work and started learning about steam and mm-hmm. stem and all of that and so i was able to bring in a lot of the folks that i was doing youth work with and then a lot of the people who had you know were on the production side like dj had as well as amp fiddler and a lot of other people were like look i'll be a part of this you know if you want to do it again so the next year we were like we're not doing dilla day we're going to do dilla youth day it's going to be all dedicated to youth and we we want to make sure that they get to learn so we had all these different stations set up where they could learn arduino or like music programming or uh code language robotics but also all this different software whether it was pro tools or logic or reason or even you know garage band or audacity like all these different tools like a or native instruments or the machine and then i had all these different people even sacramento knots like everybody that was part of the community you know antonio cosme if you know him and mm-hmm. we were like we did we, they learned how to screen print they learned how to do stenciling we had we brought in the b-boys mm. um Shout out to Mav1 that, you know, was teaching like deep, you know, movement work. And we had them making beats and they could go around like an expo to like different stations. And then at the end, you know, Urban Strings Youth Orchestra performed and we had the different youth um, groups perform. And after that, I was like, this is it. This is the formula. what we're going to do. And we grew from 150 people. The first one was held at the Car Center the next because our building was being worked on the next one was held again at 5e gallery was held there for a few years until we just saw grew and then we started holding it at the charles h wright museum i think we've been doing it there like four or five years and Mm -hmm. it's grown to like three thousand people and Mm -hmm. we have free food we've always had free food and just like really healthy food for the kids like none of that like junk and sugar and all that crap um and then it and we grew it into uh All ages, um, a lot of uh, teen spaces for them to have different conversations about, you know, stop and frisk and know your rights. And they get to perform. We have now where young people, you know, submit to be able to perform or they could teach workshops. And we have at least 60 workshops now that are happening all at the same time. Many of them are hands on. I mean, and it's just amazing. We have everything, you know, all the different aspects from from science or technology all the way to, like, movement or, you know, body movement, dance, you know, uh, critical thinking, social justice. It's just it's just really, really cool, fun place for families. And so that's what Dilla Youth Day is. And then moving forward, what I did was, um, because, you know, there was a lot of interesting tensions within his family, Dilla um, has two daughters and one of his daughters' mother has now trademarked the name, um, Dilly Youth Date, and so we're passing that on to them mm. and their and their family to own and to, to take ownership of and and all of that. Um, and then so there's that. Mm-hmm. And then with the we found hip hop, that could be a whole podcast in and of itself, but long story <laughs> yeah. short Um, We started a no-misogyny open mic in 2009 and it literally became uh, a safe space for everyone and initially it was a um, an open mic a weekly open mic and then it grew we grew to become a collective and people started asking us to come perform at universities and speak and do different things and then now, it has become a, um, now it has become, uh, I guess it's become a more formalized, if you will, as an organization, and we're in L3C, which is a, a hybrid of an LLC and a, um, uh, and, and, and a non-profit, but basically, we are a mission-driven business, if you will, and, um, it's all centered on women and um, we're doing more like artist development and artist management and booking. We do have an all-woman band. We're, we're going to be auditioning to, um, to create our all-woman band, our new, our new one, but we kind of put that on hold because of COVID because we're not really sure how a band is going to work for at least a year. Um, so, we're kind of just put a pin in that. We'll probably start working on that next year. Uh, pick that work back up next year. But for now, uh, we have a book that has been written about us and our work and our movement by two professors, um, Dr. Kelly Hay and Dr. Rebecca Ferrugia from Oakland University. They embedded themselves in our community for about five years and were studying us. Um, and they've initially wrote these journals that these academic journals and now those journals have been reviewed by people you know cultural curators like jeff chang uh legendary hip-hop historical uh curator and purveyor of hip-hop arts and so now that's a book and the book is now available you know it's called women rapping revolution and it's about us and our movement and, and what mm. they've studied. And so I'm really honored about that. It's like now that book is on like Barnes and Noble and Amazon. And it's also available on the, uh, the University of California, University of California Press. And, um, and it's out and it's fresh. And so part of my work right now is looking to connect with um, different places that could I want to say bring us there but you know not in person but like online Mm -hmm. to bring us there to have conversation about about the book and about our work and you know with with myself and the artists and and the the authors and everything um so a lot of my work currently is going to revolve around that and then just in general I've been retooling my website to be a useful space for women so I've just been reaching out to different women artists to see like what they need and so i'm actually retooling our wefoundhiphop.com website to um just to make that be more robust and useful and relevant for folks moving forward because myself i am be honest with you i'm not i have no intentions on doing any events or going anywhere for at least a year i am be honest with you Mm -hmm. I mean, we have a retreat that we do in Idlewild for women in hip-hop. It's very successful. I'm going to put that on hold until I know that it's safe and, you know, that there's a cure and that, you know, I'm not putting anyone at any risk. And all the things that I'll be doing moving forward will be all digital. So there'll be, you know, I'll just be looking at ways to make this digital space more inviting and engaging and exciting moving
2: forward. Awesome. Awesome. Beautiful. Yeah. So much to talk about and, and people can discover this stuff easily. Um, you mentioned, we found hip hop.com you have Piper Carter studio.com and then you have your own podcast, the Piper Carter podcast, which is, um, under the Detroit is different umbrella. Um, and then you've been on some other folks, podcasts and you know going a little bit deeper on all of these subjects so there's a lot to discover and then of course just going into the the music of all these artists um, y'all put together that wonderful playlist on Mother's Day of mothers in hip-hop and uh, and then of course Jay Dilla you know his influence is everywhere and then you hear his beats on other people's records but I, I love his his own records Donuts is is just my favorite
0: Yeah, you know, he wrote that on his deathbed.
2: Wow, wow.
0: That was he was trying to push out as much music as he could. Wow. That's why they're just little snippets, you know?
2: Yeah, wow, that makes sense. Let's shift back to, you know, you spoke about Southwest Detroit being this, like, influential, um voting population, and uh, you've worked with EMIAC, which you mentioned, East Michigan Environmental Action Council, on what you describe as energy democracy, and um, you came and spoke at a, a clean water campaign, get out the vote event that we did um, with Third Man Records uh, at, at the midterms a couple of years ago and spoke about this. Can you tell our listeners more about what that concept is, energy democracy?
0: So, long story short in the state of Michigan, we have a monopoly company here. It's called DTE, Detroit something, but (laughs) Mm -hmm. it's basically the the company that provides the electricity to your home. There are a couple of others, but they're basically the monopoly, um, which is terrible and illegal and just disgusting. So you know, and I know, and we all know, in the world that we live in right now, it's pretty impossible to live without electricity. I mean, uh, you know, if we, you know, many of us that like to look at ourselves as hippies would love to say that we don't need electricity. But um, but we do. Everything we do pretty much involves some level of either electricity or gas, mm-hmm. right? And or gas. And so... Um, you know, we, we want to reduce the amount of energy that we use, right? We want to reduce, we want to get rid of, like, fossil fuels forever. Like, that needs to, like, go away. But in the meantime, you know, uh, technology is continuing to evolve um, very rapidly. And pretty much our entire, all of our systems are dependent on electricity at this moment so with this company having the monopoly or being the only company that's providing they get to set the rates they get to set all these different parameters that are just ridiculous and super capitalist and just not good for people and they get to be, you know, at the table with all of our legislators, like making all these decisions as to like whether or not, you know, uh, you can have, you know, act, what, what levels of access you can have based on who they feel is valuable or not. And for the most part, they're looking at these corporations as being more valuable than people. So, you know, that's, that's, that's the way they're organizing things. Now, all of that is like super terrible stuff and like shouldn't be. And when we're talking about energy democracy, we're saying that there shouldn't be just this one company that has like all this power to make all these decisions that's all up, you know, lobbying against you, right? Everybody should be able, if they choose, to be able to have their own energy source. Now there's different debates as to like how folks should you know what that source should be. One of the sources is solar. Um there's also, you know, ways through water. There's different sources, right? And and that's a whole nother debate. But in general what we're saying is that DTE should not be lobbying so that Seth or Piper if we if I want to have solar in my roof I don't want DTE being like no you can't you got to pay me to have your solar DTE shouldn't be able to go to our legislators and say I don't want Seth to have that as a choice you know Mm -hmm. Seth Seth and everybody's got to come to me to get their energy and Seth can't make any money off this. we're the only ones that can make money off this. so we're we're saying that if you look at a lot of different cities or just states, not just you know in in the midwest but globally, right? you'll see that if you are looking at the folks that are using these different green we'll call them green technologies there there's a lot less of what we're going to call garbage or what we're going to call waste right because you also have a lot of energy waste right mm-hmm. and there's 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 a lot less of that right like these communities are learning how to live off of wind right or water or or solar right and that's a part of a consciousness that means that you are respecting the natural elements because when you have this monopolized, uh, utility, you know, there's also a disconnect from where energy comes from and how to use it as well. Right. Mm -hmm. So folks are just using energy, using energy, using energy, right. That would be like, leaving your lights on when you go to sleep, if you don't need them or just, Leaving a TV on or just things like that, right? You have a lot less of that if you're the person that's like, (laughs) you know, that Mm -hmm. has to take care of, right? Like that, you have to maintain and take care of that source. That's just another reason. But other than that, there's so much energy that it that this planet is creating, and that you know that we're able to tap into. And so we're putting too much burden on our mother, on our earth mother, Mm -hmm. when we have these very, very, very lackadaisical practices when it comes to our energy and our resources. And we are looking at COVID and this is a time that we can really start to rethink about how we're doing all of our systems. You know, Mm -hmm. and so for us with energy democracy, we're saying we want people to be able to have ownership of their energy source. We want people to, you know, to, to, to pay less. We want people, you know, it should be affordable. If this is a necessity, which it is, it should be affordable. It shouldn't rates shouldn't be increasing, especially not during covid. You know, people shouldn't be being cut off of their electricity during COVID. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we're just looking at how it's almost like a three-phase system, like helping people that are struggling right now to have their bills reduced and be able to, you know, be able to get some of that burden taken off of them. But also looking at alternative sources so that we're not reliant on this big giant, right? But then also holding that big giant accountable. Many times they're not delivering the, the, the same amount of electricity at the same rate to the two different communities. They might be, you know, uh kind of interfering, if you will, or or giving a lesser um output to communities, you know, of color or poor and disadvantaged communities. And so It's just the whole thing just needs a restructuring. But Mm -hmm. for me, one of the biggest, biggest, biggest things is we should have the ability to own. Now, there are Mm -hmm. folks here who are also a part of these coalitions and stuff that are getting in on it. But I'm going to say that they're coming at it more from the capitalist perspective, like becoming like they want to become like mini, you know, like subsidiaries, if you will so like they can get theirs and then you have to get it from them but it's different than like being a neighbor that does it right there's a lot of gentrifiers that are coming into communities and they're just straight up setting up these solar businesses Mm -hmm. And and they're charging the same rates as uh or more actually than uh than DTE because they're basically getting their energy from DTE and tagging their stuff on top. And it's basically a business venture for them, but it's not really useful to community and they're pumping it and selling it like it's, you know, uh, energy proficiency or like it's, you know, uh, some, a green solution. But for me and for you, a true green solution includes the people. Right. Mm-hmm. Not not just the technology.
1: Yes. And
0: so you know, they're not it's not a true green solution, if you will. Right. It's not ethically green. And so that's what we want to do. We want to bring more people. The democracy part is more people into the power position and into the ownership position of of their energy, which means that there's some some, you know, a learning curve that has to happen for people to get their knowledge and skills up. But this is the time we're in in COVID anyway, all everyone's getting all types of knowledge and skills up. So this is a really, this is really important um, because everybody needs energy, you know, just, just the time that we're in. And um, that's me making it very basic and plain without getting into all the different, you know, technical language of a bunch of stuff. That's, mm-hmm. that's uh. I'll put like a period there.
2: Thank you, Piper. And people can learn more about the work of EMIAC, you know, by looking up the East Michigan Environmental Action Council. It's so important for folks it's like myself up here in white majority communities living in a bubble, really, of, of a lot of privilege, a lot of power and access that I didn't have to earn, that we didn't have to earn, to just recognize the... The reality of black and brown communities being disproportionately harmed by environmental degradation, by economic exploitation, and what you're describing it it, it exemplifies that with the Marathon refinery right there, um, polluting, giving so many young people asthma, um, the water shutoffs, ten thousand people even after an executive order without water in the midst of a pandemic. And um, and so when when people want to work for clean water, you know, up here in northern Michigan, we might be able to pick and choose like, well, I want to I want to protect this watershed or I want to stand up against line five. And that's valid and important. But when we're talking about life and death in Detroit or the health of our children or whether or not we actually have water or or in Flint, whether or not the water is going to poison us and in Detroit as well. Um, this is where the intersection of environmentalism and racial justice is, is the most important place for environmentalists in white majority communities to go to and, and, and support frontline leaders like yourself. You mentioned Michelle Martinez, you know, making a donation to the Michigan Environmental Justice Coalition to help with this stuff is, is something tangible folks can do right now. Um, Monica Lewis-Patrick, We the People of Detroit. I know the People's Water Board has been critical here, too. Um, Piper, thank you so much for your dedication. And, you know, as a fellow musician and organizer of artists, I'm, I'm just so inspired by the way that you have um, stood up for artists and, and helped organize artists to stand, stand up for the most vulnerable communities and to, and to um, mobilize artists in, in movements, uh, in justice movements. And um, you know our, our mutual friends Bryce Detroit and, and Will Copeland have, have helped, helped me understand this concept of entertainment justice. Um, but I'd love to hear it from your perspective. And I, I would love for, for you to share as well, Piper, if you'd be willing, well, just a little bit more about your personal musical mythology and, like, who were the artists that inspired you as a girl? Um, So a little bit about entertainment justice and a little bit about your your personal mythology.
0: Mm. (laughs) It's interesting because um, I'm more of, I'm like, I would call myself a faithful person Mm -hmm. and... I would say faithful in terms of i I do a lot of deep trust thing um i'm I'm a just a person who just wants to see it like let's just see if it works <laughs> and it's funny because um so over the years, like so many people always ask me to like break down how or show how, and I'm thinking to myself like I never entered anything with a plan mm. you know i never I never was like. Plan it out, and this will be gonna do. I've only recently started to do that with other things that I want to do, but ninety nine point nine percent of the stuff that I ever wanted to do, I just did it. And it's like trial by learning, you know, or learn by trial. And mm-hmm. that's that so important. Been the way I've done it, you know. That, that's just being super honest. But then I do yeah. it right, and then I learn, and I say, okay, this didn't work, that didn't work, and then I get the feedback from folks. And I take that and then I say, okay, we'll do it different next time. And then we'll fix that and that and that. And then, but that's the way I've always done stuff. It was more like, I don't see women here. Okay. I'm going to, you know, mm-hmm. hey, going to people, why aren't there women here? Oh, women don't belong here. Oh, okay. Well, let me create some place where, you know, women are safe and welcome. It was more like that, you know, mm-hmm. um, And then as we learned, you know, I started doing more, I started going to more social justice trainings and started getting involved more and stuff like that, started traveling more. I'd always traveled, but it had been just purely for art, you know, just Mm -hmm. to go and do, like go do, right? Um, My recent travels, I'm going to say the last five years, I've more been doing social justice traveling where I go and learn, right? I go listen, Mm -hmm. And I go be a part of something and then I help, you know, where where I'm asked, you know what I mean? Or just participate in that way as opposed to go like going and and do something or bring something. So part of my methodology is to keep an open mind and to not judge. And Mm -hmm. I'm always looking to grow. So I'm Mm -hmm. always like I try to be as open as possible to like, can this make me grow? can this you know can i can i help this can i help the people that are here can i help the situation is this situation good for me so i'm always looking at things like that um many people would be surprised to learn about themselves right Mm -hmm. if they step outside the comfort zone and just try so i think just like really you know being intentional about the things that i produce and the people that i produce with and um and then just being gentle with myself, like I used to be very competitive and I used to be this type of person that I was so, everything had to be this way, that way, so perfect, you know, for me. And I think there's, you know, I believe in mastery of your skill and your technique. I believe in all that. And I believe in, you know, improvisation mm-hmm. and I believe in the free spirit and I believe in... You know, in being open to what the, the the creativity can bring, right to to you and to the experience. So, mm-hmm. I think those those are my methodologies. Like I know it wasn't like one, two, three, but those are my methodologies.
2: That's so helpful. Really, really beautiful. Thank you for sharing so openly. Um, and and being so generous with your time, Piper. I know you have a, a lot of irons in the fire, and. Um, you know, you're you're caring for your mother as well and and being with her. Um, I'm wondering, just in closing, if you want to give us a window into some of those records that that helped shape you as a young person.
0: There's so many. Yeah. But I would say, uh, when it comes to records, I'll name three quick stories. Mm -hmm. One, One Nation Under a Groove by Mm -hmm. George Clinton. Um, <laughs> Funkadelic that record I think is 1978 don't quote me you gotta look it up but uh but basically that record came out I think it was like five or six five maybe five or six but um when I was young I grew up between New York and Detroit back and forth back and forth and at that moment was a moment where I had moved back to Detroit And, um, it was because I was living in New York with my mom and going to, um, this exclusive private school and I had a nanny. And so I had a lot of identity crisis. I didn't understand who I was or know who I was, um, meaning like. You know, I thought being black was bad because I was being told that that's what it was. And my mom was like, I got to move you back to Detroit so you can have a sense of self. Mm -hmm. And so she had moved back here and we were at the house and I was kind of different than a lot of, you know, I hadn't been around my relatives for like that most of my life at that point because I had been in New York City. And so when I came, I was, you know, they were doing a soul train line in the living room and my grandma had this big brown wooden record player that was on the floor and it played like eight track tapes and all that and I remember my cousin who was probably about 17, 18 at the time was like I got something special for you and she had gone to the record store and had bought the 45 of One Nation Under a Groove and that sound at that time was a a revolutionary sound Mm. you know it was funk and it was the 70s and it was a new sound and uh they were they were well they were getting high in the studio when they were making the record obviously but at the same time they were experimenting with different instruments and different sounds and different things and you can hear it right you can and it it, 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 if you listen to it now you can hear that it has this sort of indigenous rhythm sounds to it because they were sort of you know creating on the spot if you will Mm -hmm. and um and, and and I was invited, you know, into my family, if you will. Like that, that was like my intro into my, my family, you know, mm-hmm. um, it was a very beautiful experience. We, we did this whole soul train line and that's how I started becoming interested in records and, and, and seeing what records could do and how powerful records were. And when you threw on records, like what that would make people do or how that would make them react. And, um, my uncle saw that I really loved records and so he would always buy me records he'd buy me records just in general he'd buy me records for Christmas he'd buy me records for my birthday he would just buy me records for every occasion and so I literally owned like so many records so I have a a bajillion records that I could name I'll just name two more one more Mm -hmm. is um I'll move a little bit further in the future I was living with my dad my dad was an actor. He lived, um, lives in LA and he was a part of the whole Hollywood scene or whatever, but, uh, he, um, he's a jazz fan. And so, mm-hmm. um, I used to listen to a lot of just different records with him, you know, like, and, uh, anything from like a Billie Holiday or even like, um, you know, Quincy Jones or, you know, even even at that time it was modern stuff like, you know, I'm going to call it White Soul, like, you know, like Boz Skaggs and, mm-hmm. you know, my, Michael Franks and stuff like that. And we would listen and my dad would smoke weed and he'd be like, listen to that, listen to the horn, you hear that? And he was the one who would be like, you know, knowledgeable and he would tell me like, who produced what, with whom, who played with who, who studied with who, who used to be in this band. Who's got another band, and he he would have all their records of what other band they were in, and we would listen to that, and then we listen back to their pop record, and he'll be like, "Can you hear that? Can you hear the syncopation? Can you hear that? This silence. You see, you create mood with silence. You see." So he was the one who mm-hmm. would, you know, taught me a lot about my record knowledge that I have now, whether it's production, mm-hmm. writing. You know, all that stuff, you know, mm-hmm. that, I, that I have packed in my brain somewhere that helps me DJ. And then I'll, then I'll move a little bit further in the future, and I'll say, my mom used to listen a lot to, um like, Luther Vandross. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, in the, this is the 80s, and my mom would get in her mood. She would p- play her bubble bath and put all her, like, around with her candles and then have like you know uh the lights real low and then she'll put her Luther vandross and um and that music always really makes me think of how peaceful you know the house was when she was doing her self-care when she throw on you know the Luther Vandross. um there are so many records but I'd say like Sweet. I'd say like those are the ones that you know even now with the Michael Franks like if I just feel like cleaning the house or just chilling the one, the popsicle toes uh <laughs> it's a great one you know just puts me in a good mood you know popsicle toes right that's the jam but um <laughs> there's just so many i love music i could do a whole podcast on just records on like record knowledge especially from the 70s mm. uh, i'm a huge 70s uh 70s my favorite era mm. but uh yeah even though i'm a hip-hop head and, and i love hip-hop mm-hmm. like um yeah i love hip-hop i'm very knowledgeable about hip-hop but i think 70s is more like my heart like my sentiment you know uh that's what gets me at my core and it's all types of music from the 70s i love soul funk rock you know um and and i i love a lot of classical music too i grew up listening both my parents love classical music so i listened to a lot of classical music growing up because both my parents are artists and when you grow up in a home of arts, like at least sixty percent of your life is going to be spent uh, practicing your art while listening to classical music. <laughs> mm-hmm. So even now, when I'm working on websites and, and or whatever, if I'm editing mu- editing photos and stuff, I listen to a lot of classical music or a lot of jazz um, or a lot of new artists and stuff. So I'm and I'm actually always looking for for new artists to, to support, especially great music, great lyrics, no misogyny, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was, that was like a long winded way of answering your That's question. That's so
2: great. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much, Piper. Well, perhaps sometime in the future, um, in, in a more equitable and beautiful future that we have in front of us, um, We could hire you to do like a 70s dance music DJ set late night at Earthwork Harvest Gathering back up at Earthwork Farm. Oh, my God.
0: You guys would love
2: it. I know (laughs) we would. (laughs) Thank you so much for all your time, all your work. Um, And folks, all of our listeners, I really encourage you to check out We Found Hip Hop the Piper Carter podcast, pipercarterstudio.com, Frontline Detroit, and and everything else that was mentioned here. Keep up the good work and and take good care, Piper. Looking forward to our next conversation.
0: Thank you so much for having me, and um, thank you to all the listeners for listening.
2: State of Water is powered by the Clean Water Campaign for Michigan. This campaign represents an opportunity to help place clean water issues front and center by partnering with environmental organizations across the state, by educating voters, and by urging every candidate running for public office to make a strong stand on critical issues affecting Michigan's waters. Using storytelling and music events across the state to amplify the groundswell of public support for clean water issues, this campaign is driven by Michiganders from all walks of life, who share a similar priority, protection of our water.
1: Both State of Water and the Clean Water Campaign are programs of the Michigan-based nonprofit, Title Track. Their mission, engaging creative practice to build resilient social ecological systems that support clean water, racial equity, and youth empowerment. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on Wednesday. Don't miss an episode. Tune in next time.